Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 through 10. It's where we left off last time I was here in James. It says here in verse 7 of James chapter 4, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Right here we have a series of commands. There are ten, to be exact. There are ten imperative verbs in the Greek language that are right here. They're found in what's called aorist imperative. All that means is that these are commands that are, as the word says, imperative. Listen, he is saying, here's the culmination. I want to draw your attention. And so now he's going to contrast. We've seen that in James. He'll bring something up and then he contrasts it and comes back the other way. So James in the middle of all of these 10 straight commands that really draw our attention. And I believe the, this is really the focal point of the whole letter. This is what James has been getting at. This is the heart of all that he's talking about. And it's one of the great and very clear invitations that's given in the Bible. We can take this section of James in kind of two views. Was he writing to saved or to unsaved people? Was he writing to people that needed to repent and radically change their lives? Or those who were unsaved that were looking into Christianity, wanted to see something about what was going on. And we all know that James, this is the oldest book of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament. And he is writing to many Jews that were interested in looking into Christianity, wanted to see what it was about. Because it is God's word. It is unlike any other book that you might read, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to work in our lives, to work in our hearts. And so we may draw different things because the Holy Spirit will use His Word to speak to you. And it may be something that the preacher hasn't even spoken about. But God's Holy Spirit deals with us in that way. And I believe it's God's desire, it's His will, if you will, to see every person saved. It's God's will that in all of these commands, and that's what He's really getting at, that He wants to see every person to know Christ as Savior and then to walk in that same life. And of course, there's many invitations that are given in the Bible. I think I found about 15, and it didn't take me very long. So I've, I've given you verses here. Here's just five of them. And I left, like I said, I left off about 10. So, so many invitations throughout the scripture that call sinners to repent, sinners to come. Like I've said in Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, 
by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your father Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and gave it to them. And then also, you're probably familiar with Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Acts 16. This is the place where the Philippian jailer asked Paul, exactly sirs what must i do to be saved and paul and silas replied believe on the lord jesus christ and you shall be saved you and your household and then there's of course romans 10 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth jesus as lord and believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead you shall be saved and there's one last invitation that sums up in the whole book of revelation the whole end of the bible Revelation 22:17 it says and the spirit and the bride say come let him who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come so there's invitation after invitation. And I said, I, I found 15 of them and I left many off. So I want you to know it is God's desire. It is God's heart to see every person come to know Jesus Christ. And I think this is what this passage is talking about. In all of that, this passage is talking about coming and being a possessor of eternal life. Because there have been those that James was dealing with that were professors of life, but not possessors of life. You see the difference? You can be professing and not possessing. Those who are possessing the truth and the living faith, and then those who are possessors of a fake, dead faith. And the heart of this epistle really calls those that would read, those that will hear, to be sure that your faith is real, to test it. That's where James ends up in chapter 5 in 19 and 20. That's where he takes us. He says that we know that we have believed. So the whole idea is to convert someone, convert the sinner from the error of his ways and to, to save that soul from death. He has been talking all of this time to make sure that your faith is real. How many people in this Christmas season say, oh, I believe in Jesus. We're celebrating the season. We're celebrating the birth of Christ, and they do not know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior. You're going to find people all around that will celebrate, get caught up in the trappings, and say, oh, yes, we believe Jesus, but even the demons believe. Remember where James told us that? The demons believe in Jesus. They've seen him. They know. And yet, even in their orthodox faith, it is not a saving faith. That's what the whole idea is, that the Lord wants us to know that there is a true salvation. How many times did Jesus speak about that there would be those that would say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and done that? And they do not have a relationship with him at all. And that's really what's on the heart of James here. That's what's in James' desire, that he wants to know and make sure that everybody knows the reality of their salvation. The parallel thought is that also we as believers, we as saved people, will then live up to the things of true believers. So we're going to see both aspects here. 
Remember, throughout this epistle, we've been looking at all the tests of faith. I think I've given them to you there in your notes. Chapter 1, we see how true faith handles trials, how true faith handles temptation, how a true faith responds to the Word, how a true faith is concerned with purity of life. In chapter 2, we saw how true faith is concerned about people in need or people who are poor, that we not be respecter of persons. We saw how true faith produces works, good works, righteous works, righteous deeds. And in chapter 3, we saw how true faith can be made manifest by the use of our tongue and in the patterns of our speech and also in the matter of wisdom. That is, that the behavior by which your lifestyle is identified. What kind of life are we living? And then at the beginning of chapter 4, we saw how true faith is separated from the world. It does not love the world. It is the friend of God and the enemy of the world, not the enemy of God and the friend of the world. We saw that they cannot coexist. And James has been saying to put your life up to the test. Look at yourself. Having said all of that through chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now he calls for that proper response. Here's the response that he's asking for. That saving faith that gives, in a sense, the invitation that goes to really summing up everything that he said. And if we've studied carefully, if we've studied kind of cautiously as we go through this, we're particular to know that, you know what, and, and let me just go back and read chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. And so he's telling us that if we're going to be wise in speaking to unbelievers, if we're going to use God's wisdom, and there is a wisdom that is of God and not of this world, there is a wisdom that we are asking for and looking for so that we would be able to share the truth. He's very clear. James has characterized what the world looks at because there's envying, there's strife. All of those things are not from above. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, that it's earthly, that it's sensual, that it's demonic. And he mentions envy and strife and confusion and every evil work. And he's talking about how all of that's come together. Then in chapter 4, he makes it very clear that those who are friends with the world are enemies of God. So we've been talking about worldly wisdom. I just want to bring you up to where we are to see that now he's bringing about and bringing somebody to understand their condition. You've got to get lost before you can get saved. That's one of the things we learned in, in seminary. Before you're leading somebody to Christ, you've got to make sure they understand they're lost. They have to need Christ. So then when we come to verse 7, this is an invitation to those people. Their life was full of envy and strife and they were a friend of the world and they were an, an enemy of God and they had a worldly wisdom and all of those things. And that's why I think verse 7 through 10 really talked to those that have found themselves lacking. They've taken the test and they've said, uh-oh, I don't match up. It doesn't meet up. I don't have the right attitude. I haven't been a doer of the word. I've been a hearer, but I don't have the right attitude toward purity of life, toward people in need, being a respecter of person or having my tongue in check. And the invitation then is directed to those who are not saved that are still captive to this earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom. That's why, according to verse 6, 
He says that those that are proud, not humble, are in desperate need of God's grace. That's what he's saying. Gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. Now, understand that he never resists his children. God does not resist you. He gives more and more grace to you. As a child of God, he's going to continue to give you grace. But he gives grace to the humble. There's the two contrasting points. You have the proud and you have the humble. And that's what James is talking about. That's why I think this is a great invitation here. That's why he's leading up that we would submit ourselves to God, that we are in desperate need of God's grace. Those that are proud, I don't think that anywhere in Scripture do you find the saved being called the proud. Even Abraham back in chapter 2 and verse 23, he's called a friend of God because he believed in God. He trusted. First John chapter 2, it talks about if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So clearly he's giving a real passionate appeal. He's calling out to people to see that we look at ourselves because there have been these people that have kind of mentally been looking at what is Christianity? It's been a mental faith. It's not been a heart faith. It's something that they're looking at, they're examining. And you know what? So many in this world might be examining what does it mean that Christ came into the world? They're examining it in their head and they've never received Christ in their heart. James is saying, test yourself, because he's been calling us as believers to live up to our faith, to live up to those things that ought to be characteristics of us. And it's as if he was saying that believers, we know how to handle trials, but we ought to handle them even better. He's saying that as, as a child of God, you know how to respond to the word and to be doers of the word. Still, we ought to be doing it better. And he says, as, as a believer, we pursue purity of life, but we ought to pursue it more. As believers are gracious to people in need, we ought to even be more gracious. So there is a message for us as God's people there's a message for us that, yes, we are doing all of those things, but we can do better. We can do more. We can yield more and more. But secondarily, these instructions really come to somebody who may be a professor of something that he doesn't possess. The promise of verse 6 is wonderful. And I think that it's fitting for the Christmas season. The wonderful promise of verse 6 is the grace of salvation. What is grace? Because he's saying no matter what your life is like, if you're proud, if you love the world, if your wisdom is earthly, if it's demonic, if it's sensual, if you're a person who didn't pass the test, God has grace for you. God's love is for you. He gives more grace. And I believe this is a justifying, saving, glorifying grace that he's talking about. The grace of salvation, the saving grace. Literally, verse 6 says he is giving greater grace. It's that comparative word. He's comparing it. He gives even more grace. And he's more and more. So what is grace? Well, what do I mean when I say he gives grace? It's God's favor that's given to sinners when we're undeserving. That's given to all of us that are undeserving. And within the, that favor is forgiveness. It's love, the promise of heaven, the promise of his Holy Spirit, the spiritual blessings, understanding of his word, the joy and the peace, all the fruit of the Spirit. All of those come about as a result of God's grace. All of that is God's favor to us who are sinners who don't deserve it. 
But God has a grace available to all who will come in faith to Christ. Greater grace than the strength of our fallen nature. Greater grace than the power of sin. Greater grace than the might of Satan. Grace that is greater than the pull of the flesh. Grace that is greater even than death. God's grace is so magnificent no matter what your life is like, no matter how sinful someone might be, no matter how much they love the world, no matter how proud they might be, no matter how their lusts are driving them, no matter how your wisdom might be, even of that of the world or the underworld, God's grace is greater. God's grace is more. One commentator said this, it tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit salvation for there's always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. We may contradict the grace of reconciliation. We may overlook the grace of indwelling, but he gives more grace. Even if we turn to him and say, what I have received so far is much less than enough, he would reply, well, you may have more. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. I like that. I like that very much because that's who our God is. And when we know who our God is and when we understand that even though I fall short, fall so far short, God's grace is more than sufficient. Whatever a sinner is and whenever, wherever the saint is, when the sinner and the saint come to Christ, he gives that justifying grace and then he gives that sanctifying grace and there is no limit and so we ought to just say, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. And that ought to cause us to praise and to rejoice and to be so glad. Oh, you know what? In, in Proverbs chapter 3 and 34, because that's where James is quoting in Proverbs 3, 34, wherefore God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He uses that verse out of the Old Testament really to bring about his point. The major thrust here as it's related unbeliever, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's not talking about two classes of Christians. He's talking about unsaved and saved. So to make it clear, think about that, because it tells us in Proverbs 3, 33, the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesses the habitation of the just. So the Proverbs that James is quoting is contrasting the unsaved and the saved, the child of God and the unbeliever. Verse 34, it talks about, surely he scoffs at the scoffers, but he gives grace to the lowly. Now that point is really obvious, and that's why James is using that. And when James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says God resists the proud, he could not be talking about a believer. I don't think he's talking about a believer. What about a sinning believer? Well, read the rest of the verse. He gives grace unto the humble. Does that mean that if you're not humble, you don't get grace as a Christian? No, let's think that through. God doesn't hold back grace from his own. Even when we sin, he gives us grace. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and righteous to keep on forgiving us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that's not just that, well, we can go off and live in any way that we feel like it. No, but He's always there to correct us, to bring us back. Constantly, God's grace flows to us. He gives grace to the humble. The humble then become that category. That's not the kind of Christian. It's the definition of a believer. You see where I'm going with this? All who have humbled themselves because you have humbled yourself to come to Christ. That's what it means. To say that God's talking about two kind of believers, that God doesn't give grace to one group, but to the proud believers would doom them. Doom those proud believers. So once you come into that category of a believer, you've received his grace and you are now in the category of the humble. That's why, as it was in Proverbs, that contrast between how God treats unbelievers that are called the proud and he treats the believers who are called the humble. Every believer, when you've come to Christ, you had to humble yourself. You had to recognize. Because you humbled yourself in coming to Christ, you acknowledged your sin. You affirmed his lordship. You affirmed his rule in your life. You humbled yourself. So you are in that category where we are now a child of God. Well, in verse 7, he talks about, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil. Now that word resist is the Greek word anastasio, and it means to place yourself in battle array. You're in array against an enemy. Have you ever seen when an army is ready and they're set, they're waiting, they, are, they have all of their armor on. They've got the helmet, they've got all the great armor that's now afforded to our armies, and they are in array waiting for the enemy. That's the word that he uses here. God places himself in battle array against the proud. You see, that's why I don't think that there are two groups of Christians here. Because God is not against his own. God is never against his own. And here he's against the proud and because they are driven by their own envying, their lusting spirit. That's the way verse 5 defined it. And on the other hand, he gives grace to the humble. So we ask ourselves again, who are the humble? Well, that's the answer is that they're all believers of all generations. We could look at that a little bit, that humility is linked in the saving faith of Scripture. Do you remember what Jesus said? Except a man become as a little child, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. As a little child, why? Because we've humbled ourselves. Then God grants, in James verse 6, God grants grace to the humble, his saving grace. But along with God's grace, there is a clear response on the part of man. There is something that you did. James is concerned and he's pleading for people to respond and he gives a very clear, unmistakable command to call for the right kind of humility. One thought that I cherish is that our God does not want to send any person to hell. Not a one. He doesn't want to send any. He came himself in the form of a child, in the form of man. He came in humble fashion that no one would be drawn to him because of his wealth or his beauty or his popularity. Nothing that the world considers that's important, but he came as a baby in a lowly manger. The all-powerful creator who spoke the world in being became helpless, poor, giving up all for the sake of God's grace to us, to save us from our sin. Emmanuel, 
Hell was created for the angels because remember when God created, they saw. They saw what God could do. They saw the glory of God and still they rebelled. There was no hope for them. God created a hell for them. He did not create it for fallen mankind. But yet there are men that will resist and do not want God in their life. They want to do it their own way. Now we who are made lower than the angels are also fallen because we've inherited that nature. We get that. But God's grace has been remarkably shown to us that no one has to go. To be adopted as his children now is his grace. Now think that through with me. We've established so far that when the Bible in verse 6, that God resists the proud, he's saying that all of those who are unbelievers, they're identified as the proud because they will not submit to God. And on the other hand, he gives grace to the humble, to those who have submitted to God. So the question then comes, if grace is only for the humble, how do I humble, how do I get humble, and who are the humbled? How can I then have that saving grace? How can I take that gift of salvation? So the question is answered in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The question is then, how, how do I act humbly? How do you do that? So James tells us in this passage, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You see in all of that, do you see how he's directing now to unbelievers? Do you see this passage maybe in a little different light? Because you've already seen that he's talking about people that are driven by an internal desire and internal lust. They're not true believers. But if you took nothing but verses 7 through 10, he could never be speaking to anybody but unbelievers. But if we just reverse these people who, by virtue of these commands, these people who have not submitted to God, these people who have not taken a stand against the devil, these people who are far from God and need to draw near, these are people who are outwardly corrupt and corrupt inwardly. They're called sinners. These people are double-minded trying to hold on to God and onto the world at the same time. These are people who laugh and party when they ought to be weeping and mourning. Specifically, they are labeled as sinners. You see, that's why he's called this, the word sinner in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That is a Greek word of harmaletoi, and it's a word that's used of sinners, of people that are hardened sinners. It's used of people who openly disregard the law of God. They have a reputation for public immorality. Let me just say, when, remember when the Pharisees wanted to really get at Jesus? They wanted to really lambast Jesus. They wanted to pull him down. What did they say? Oh, he eats with publicans and sinners. Same word. He eats with those who, that are openly bad people whose wickedness is very apparent. They're sinners. I'll just divert. One thing I liked in prison is you knew who the Christians were because you saw their lives very different and you saw the sinners. They knew they were sinners. One of the reasons that we were able to see so many come to Christ because they had been told, you are worthless, you are a sinner. 
these Jewish people that James was writing to, when they heard that, they would have known who sinners were. They would never have assumed that they were believers. They would have known that they were openly wicked, openly bad, apart from God, apart from God's law, apart from God's work. So going back to James, James says these people are double-souled. That's the word, double-minded. They're divided of their heart. And God wanted to make sure that they understood that they love the world and they try to love God. You cannot love God and love sin. And that's what these people, they want one foot in the world and one foot in church. And that's why Jesus and James are saying, you can't do that. You can't play both sides. He said, he that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not scattereth abroad. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two masters, for either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will cling to the one and refuse the other. So who are these people who are sinners, double-minded? They are deceivers and deceived. They are people desperately in need of God's grace. They're proud. They're driven by their passions. They're driven by their lifestyle, and it reflects an earthly lifestyle, a sensual approach in all that they possess. They desperately need God's saving, wonderful, sanctifying, glorifying grace. The benefit of grace is not poured out on us without requirement. There is a response factor that's necessary. Humble faith. We can go to that point and, and say that there is a saving faith, but from the human viewpoint, there were 10 imperatives that we started out with. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. How do we submit ourselves unto God? What does that mean? It's very simple. We align ourselves under the authority of God. It means just that. You've lined up under someone's authority. It's used of troops that are under a general, a general that's arraying his troops and getting them ready, that you get in your ranks and ready to go under the authority of God. And it's used, by the way, in this realm of, in the human realm, in Luke 2, 51, Jesus was subject to his parents. In Romans 13, remember Paul writes, and he says, be subject to the powers that be, governments that are ordained of God. Ephesians 5, he talks about the matter of the wife's submission to her husband and that the husband is to be under Christ. He talks about in Titus 2, 9, where it talks about servants being subject, come under the authority of their masters. So in all of this, it means that same thing. We're coming under the authority. We're submitting to someone else's authority. Just as he says, servants, be subject to your masters. So it's a word that's used in the human realm to point up someone's responsibility to come under authority of someone else. That means in our Christian life, we are to come under the authority of God. We are to humble ourselves. Then it means that we are willing and we're making a conscious submission to God's sovereign divine authority. We recognize who he is. That's very basic. I said it at the start. You've got to get someone lost before they can get saved. They have to recognize their condition. They've got to recognize and by taking and bringing our life in line under God's rightful rule in our life, we become the humble. We recognize he's the giver of grace. He's the one that has done all of this. He's the one who lifts us up. You're saying no to self and yes to the Lord. Yes to that authority in your life, to the Christian life. The reception of grace begins at surrender. 
we begin to understand it's yielding, it's that heart of obedience. When we came to Christ for salvation, we don't understand all that. We didn't know what that's really what we did. James 10:3 talks about in Israel that they were ignorant of God's righteousness and went about to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. You see, they didn't understand their lostness. They did not understand they needed to come. That's why we need to, as a child of God, and I'm going to close out with this. As a child of God, we submit ourselves to Him. As a child of God, we bring our life in line with what He's doing. And maybe there are those here, I've seen church members get saved, and that's who James was talking about here. He was talking to people who were coming and being in the church but they did not know Christ as Lord and Savior. One of the things the Lord Jesus over and over wanted to make sure, and I think this was the topic of James, he wanted to make sure you know where you're going because your life is hidden in Christ. And that can only come because you have submitted to him, you've asked him to save you, you've been born again. You know him as Lord and Savior. And then as a child of God, now we're growing, now we're learning, now the grace of God has been heaped upon us, and there's more and more grace. Now we're going to try a little harder. We're going to strive a little more because there's man's part in all of this. We are not just said to be without any hope. We're not said to be just out there on our own. We want you to come so that we can show you from God's word that you could have eternal life. Or maybe there's some other need. You know it. God knows it. His Holy Spirit has worked in your life to make that known. You've been too proud, thinking, I can do this. I've got it. And we need to bring our life in line with God's word and recognize it's his grace. And he gives us more and more grace. And then we're able to recognize he is the Lord of my life. He is in charge. He is taking care of everything. And I submit to you, Lord. You see, he gives more grace to his children. More and more grace all the time. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We just say, Lord, you be Lord of my life. You take control. You watch over and you direct me. You give me all that I need, that I might walk in the humility, recognizing that I can't do it of myself, but I've come under your headship. I've come under you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions, or perhaps you have questions of a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website, or you can reach us at SCL of ministry at gmail.com we look forward to hearing from you